Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. All right, so where we've been, now where we're going. So we talked about going from pain to purpose, from sorrow to strength. We talked about how we typically deal with pain, discomfort, unsettling things, that we either respond to them by distracting ourselves from them in order to escape or by becoming indifferent uh, towards them in some way. All of it is a, a kind of escape plan that doesn't really work out in our favor. And we talked about what God's real purpose in these things are, right? that, that, that they don't happen by accident, but that there is a real purpose in building us up to have a frame in which we can bear up under the eternal weight of glory that shall be ours in eternity. What I want to talk about now is moving from coddling to courage, to having an attitude of coddling ourselves to an attitude more of courage. In other words, what should I do about it? What are the actions? What are the steps that I should actually take? So we, we dealt with kind of the framework. We dealt with how we should think about it, but how do we put it into action? Because action is the key. Acting is the key to overcome sloth and embrace really the greatness of difficulty. So what do I do? How do I do it? What actions do I take? Our responses to pain and difficulty, to suffering, they cultivate a coddling type of attitude when we're faced with various challenges. It leads us to view things in a faithless, hopeless, and loveless manner. It makes us cowards, where we shrink back from duty. We are afraid of what might happen. In response, we need to cultivate courage, not coddling. And by courage, I mean that we would begin to dare to believe in the promises of God, to dare to hope in the promises of God, and there, then dare to act upon that faith and hope, which is dare to love what God loves and dare to hate what God hates. Wind, Nicholas Taleb says, extinguishes a candle but energizes a flame. We don't want to go through our lives as though we are just a candle, but that rather there is a flame that can be energized by the difficulties that we face. So dare to believe. This is the first step. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, something quite extraordinary. He says, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. So you are not lacking in any gift of the Spirit. He has not held out on you for anything. He has given it to you in full measure, pressed down, flowing over in your lap. You have 
the gospel, the power of God unto salvation, not only for you, but also for everyone around you. You have been given the spirit-filled and life-giving word of God, the prophets and the apostles, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You have the ascended Christ seated at the right hand of God, working all things for your good, for those called according to his purpose. You are not lacking anything. You have everything that you need. But will we use them? Will we put into use the gospel for our salvation? That is, will we actually grasp hold of it in faith and make use of it for when difficulties come? Not just as an intellectual exercise, but something that actually has meaning for who you are and what you have done and what you have failed to do. That it actually repairs relationships, past, present, and future. Will you use it? You have the word of God, which is profitable for teaching and for reproving of false doctrines. It's all there. They're available for your use. And you have been given trained men who perhaps know more about it than you. You should ask them to help you. I'm struggling with this. What is the Bible verse? Where do I go? What should I look to? But not only for doctrine, going against the spirit of this age, but also for life. The Holy Scriptures have been given to you also to learn about how you shall live in this world as you have been called by God to live. Again, we go back to the catechism, to the table of duties. We asked ourselves, consider your life and light, your place in life in light of the Ten Commandments. These aren't abstract things. He is not a God just far off. He cares about the very things that you are dealing with on a daily basis. And he has inscribed it in his word so that it is immovable, unchanging. He has put it there for your use, for its useful. Do you see the word of God as useful for your life? Do you go to it when things get difficult? Do you ask questions of it and seek for answers? Again, you have no lack here. And where you do find that you yourself are lacking, there are many others around you who have been given perhaps what you need. The ascended Christ. He is ruling at his father's right hand, putting all of our enemies under his feet. He has already won, and he is reigning. Whatever happens in this world is not outside of his control. He knows what is happening. He knows how we're dealing with it. He sees it all. And from his good pleasure, he has saw fit to allow it for a time for our good. Do you make use of the ascended Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, there to be your mediator 
between God the Father and you to bring your requests to him. And in the midst of all that, do you not just notice the things that have gone awry, but do you give him thanks, even for the difficult things? If you, th- if you read through most of St. Paul's letters, when he begins to talk about prayer, he either says begin with thanksgiving or end with thanksgiving, and in some places, both. The thing that distinguishes the pagan in Romans chapter 1 from the Christian is that they all know that God exists. They can see it in creation. They are grateful for the gifts of creation, but they do not give thanks to the one who gave them. The difference between the pagan and the Christian is not just that we know that God exists. They know. They don't. They don't, they might not admit it, but they do not give him thanks for what he has given. Christians do. Is that a mark of your life? Or does your life look like the pagans? So dare to believe. Again, what did you expect? Luke 17, you enter by the narrow door. It is a difficult path. 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised when you are met by various trials. Romans 8, the present sufferings of this age are not worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in us. We know the end of the story. Do not be overcome by the burdens, the being weighed downness of our current and present sufferings. Do not be overcome by them. To be overcome by them is not to have hope, not to believe. Are these the things that you confess? when you either go to private confession or when you confess your sins to God in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Dare to believe. We are in a contest, a combat, a race, which we are given to give our all in in order to win the prize. Notice all the conquering language. Do you not know in 1 Corinthians 9 that a race, that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Revelation 2, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 21, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Matthew 11, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. It must be conquered. It must be overcome. Romans 8, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. And so to move from coddling to courage, we must dare to believe that we are more than conquerors. We must take God at his word, 
for he is faithful. In other words, we must believe that he has not held out on us, that he has given us everything that we need. That we need to dare to hope. And here, the stories from the Old and the New Testaments are really, really helpful. So not only are you looking, not only are you looking to the very specific promises about what God does and how he uses difficulty and strife in your life, but you look to the very people who went through it. God loves to release his people. He loves to hear their laughter as they come disbelieving out into the sunlight. He loves to listen to the songs they sing when all of this happens. And in some ways, he loves our relief more than we do. Think of Noah and his family when they came out of the ark onto dry land. Forty days and forty nights just in the storm. Nine months locked away. They came out on dry land. They dared to have hope in what God was going to do. If he did that for them, why would he not do that also for you? Think of Joseph being brought out of jail hurriedly shaved that day and bustled into Pharaoh's throne room. Joseph did not know that that was the day. And yet it happened. And he was set as a steward over all the kingdom of Egypt. What his brothers planned for evil, God used for good. And we see that take place. Think of uh, Jacob being told after many years exiled in the depths of his grief that Joseph was actually alive. And not just alive, but ruling over Egypt in order to keep Jacob and his seed alive. Think of the Israelites in Egypt laboring in their slavery for many years, observing the convulsions of the great plagues on Egypt, suddenly released. They went out with joy. Think of the Jews in Babylon suddenly hearing about the decree of Cyrus. You are free to return. Think of Esther and Mordecai as they contemplated how God arranged for the reversal of fortunes between Haman and Mordecai. Think of Peter in prison, kicked in the side by an angel, hey, wake up, and then escorted out. Or Paul in prison in Philippi, escorted out by the city officials. These are God's great visions where he gives to his people the vision of the prison doors swinging open. And all the stuff that keeps us locked in and shut down and weighed down, taken away. He has promised and done it to them. He has promised it to you, done it already in time for your sins, for death, and for the power of devil and, the he- and hell. If he would do that, how would he not do all the other things? Dare to hope and cling to those hopes. To hope simply means to have an expectation of good coming from your Father in heaven. So that when difficult things come again, we return. I can't wait to see what God's going to do with this. 
How's he going to handle this? To have that kind of frame of mind so that you don't become overwhelmed and shut down. And then, of course, the crowning example of all examples. Think of Christ stealing himself for his passion by looking forward to that moment of great deliverance he would accomplish for you. It was a moment he knew that would come. But he endured the cross, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father for the joy set before him. This is how the saints of old looked ahead. And this is how Jesus looked ahead with the full knowledge that the promises of God are sure and certain. Entering into the trial, he looked at the joy that was coming. And with this as the case, we are instructed to look at Jesus looking at his future joy. And we are instructed to do the same. We are to run our race with the same kind of expectation that he had. That is why St. Paul can delight in the sufferings. That is why he can be content with the weaknesses and the beatings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks. Because he looked with joy of what God was going to do. So dare to believe what God has promised you with regard to all of our difficulties, whether they are of our own making or not. Dare to hope that what he has promised is real. And dare to act. I don't know which one is the more difficult, the believing, the hoping, or the acting. They're all kind of wrapped up together. If you don't believe and you don't hope, you're not going to act. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we can let not our elephant take us wherever it's going. Sometimes we can talk back to it and tell it what to do. And that is what I want to focus on. That even when we don't feel like acting, that is doing, the doing is the very thing we need to do. Because it sets our mind completely right. Just as an example, my wife knows I'm going to say this. I don't like to hug. I just don't. I'm not a huggy person. Uh, and of course, God gave me a wife who does. He wanted to teach me how to hug. So in the beginning, I would just hug real fast. And she was very unhappy about this. I had to count in my head how long of a hug I needed to give. I don't count anymore. Because I actually enjoy hugging. Not everyone, don't hug me. I've learned to love that. And sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. We need to do the thing in order to learn to love the thing. So the first advice that we're given on how to overcome the difficulties of being distracted or becoming indifferent is not to run away. To stay 
as the ancient desert fathers said, to stay in your cell. To stay in the place where God has put you right then and there. And just stay there. Take it in. Take a deep breath, a deep exhale, open your eyes, and just take it in. Whatever it is. Feel all the feels, whatever you need to do, but just don't run away into some kind of distraction or become indifferent in some way. Stay in your cell. Stay at your post. And then look at what the thing you're supposed to be doing, what your duty is right then and there and do it. Whether you feel like it or not, just do it. Begin. Just start. And I think you will find, like most people find, as I found with hugging, that eventually you get energy and focus to do that thing. Marcus Aurelius, uh, a Roman emperor who was a Stoic, so I don't ascribe to everything, nor should you. But he said, we suffer more in our minds by possible future things than we ever do by doing the things right in front of us right then and there. And so he would always encourage us to do the things right in front of us. Stay in yourself. There is energy in action. We know this from the laws of Newton. Inertia. That which is at rest tends to stay at rest and something, unless something puts a force outside of it. That which is in motion tends to stay in motion unless there is a force acting on it from the outside. There are no sweatless solutions. It's work. But y'all were created for work. There was work before the fall. This is how you were built. You were made for this. So don't begin to think, I can't when God made you for these reasons, to do these things. And so you go back to dare to believe. This is who God made you. This is how God made you. Do you work perfectly 100%? No. But if you begin, you're at least 100% better than you were. So begin. In other words, procrastination is for tomorrow. Procrastinate your procrastination. So I don't say give it up completely. But just procrastinate in that which you want to put off. See if by in doing these things, you get the inertia, you get the energy, you get the thing that keeps you going to finish the task. Evagrius, one of those desert fathers, said, perseverance is the cure for sloth and its symptoms, along with the execution of all things with great attention and the fear of God. Set a measure for yourself in every work and do not let up until you have completed it. So make a plan. You can't do all the things all at once. You just can't. I have a shelf of books that I want to read, a shelf. But if I keep looking at them and saying, wow, that's a lot to read, and I never just pick one up and make a plan that I'm going to devote 10 minutes a day to that book, 
none of them will get red. But in 10 minutes a day, a 300-page book, I can get done in probably about a month. A month. That's making a dent. So make a plan. And then work that plan. Here I'd like a little side note on making plans, you know, goals and things like that. I'm sure you've all heard about SMART goals, you know. I think the best thing you should do is that when you set out to want to do something, that you give yourself a time limit. Right? You give yourself a date. So, and then you work backwards and think, what are the actions that need to be done for me to achieve that? So, say one of your goals is to talk to so-and-so about their not coming to church. Maybe that's the thing you're avoiding. Make a plan. Sit down and say, by this date, I want to do this. It must be done by this date. Give yourself a whole month to get to there. What are the things that I need to get in order in order to be ready for that conversation? Are there things I need to get in order? Should I talk to my pastor first? What should I be ready for? Does he have advice to give to me so that I can talk and be ready for possible objections? Right? There's one thing. So I need to go do that. And then maybe there's something I need to reread. Maybe I should reacquaint myself with their confirmation verse. Maybe I should reacquaint myself with certain passages of the Bible. That I want to have these ready. But if you only think to yourself, you know, I need to do X and there isn't a plan, it stays in your head and it doesn't get done. Unless you're one of those very unique people that is like that. But I don't think there are that many unique people. So make a plan. Works the same way with exercise or anything you want to do. You set a time, you break down what needs to be done in that time, and then you work that plan. I want to lift weights so many minutes in a week. I want to run so many minutes in a week. And I want to make sure I have so many uh, grams of protein in a week. You can all, you can track that, right? And I'm going to do that for 12 weeks. And you focus on the small goals, right? So if you want to get 120 minutes a week of lifting, you just need four days a week of 30 minutes. You break it down and then you just look at you look at those things. You shorten the time to arrive at your goals. That's the, that's the immediate goal. In the back of your mind, you're like, I want to get more fit. But the immediate goal is, I just need 30 minutes on the treadmill. I can do that. In other words, sometimes our goals are so big or we're so overwhelmed by how much there is to accomplish that, we need to actually do enough thinking about it to break it down into smaller chunks so we can chip away at it. It's plodding through it, slowly. It's keeping our nose to the grindstone. It's the rabbit versus, uh, the, the hare versus the turtle. It's all of those things. We know this. We know it. So perseverance is the cure. Staying at it, remaining in your cell, don't run away. When you feel that desire to procrastinate, 
when you feel that desire to distract yourself away from thinking about how difficult this thing is going to be or to become indifferent toward it because I'm not the kind of person that can ever make that happen. You stay in yourself. You make your plan and you persevere. You keep pushing. Because there are weeds and there are thistles. By the sweat of the brow, we eat. We just must tend to what must be tended to. We were created to do that work. You should also train yourself by doing small, difficult things. These aren't tricks. They're not life hacks, but they do get us in a mindset of facing something difficult and persevering in it. They can be silly. Take a cold shower. Or every day end with a cold shower. Like end your shower with cold. I mean, I mean cold. Like you turn it not just a notch, but you turn it where it's almost completely freezing and just stay in there for a bit. There is a huge mental thing that goes on when you are looking at that dial, feeling that warmth and comfort, and you're reaching for that and you're like, do I really want to do that? I know what's coming and it's not going to be fun. But just doing it, you're not hurting yourself. In fact, in some cases, you're probably helping yourself. You wake yourself up more. Take a cold shower. If you guys are into camping, which I bet you guys are up here, don't go glamping. Like, get a sleeping bag and sleep on the ground. Or just do it in your room every once in a while. Or take a nap on the ground. It's not comfortable. But it helps us to get comfortable doing uncomfortable things. Right? So this is another thing that you can pull out of your hat when you're like, this is going to be difficult. Oh yeah, well, I've done difficult things. Right? Winds build upon winds upon winds. So, look, if you can't lay on the ground, I'm not saying you have to do it that way. These are a few things that I have tried to do, namely the cold shower. That's really difficult for me. But find something that makes you uncomfortable and do it. Something that is low-key, meaning you don't feel like if I say the wrong thing, this, this person is never going to come church again. It has, it's low-key in the sense that it doesn't have high stakes. It's a low-stakes thing. Right? No one is affected whether or not you only do 20 seconds in the shower versus 35. But you can do that, low stakes, and teach yourself to endure difficult things. So when you're in your cell and you're tempted by distraction or indifference, not only are you going to want to believe and hope, but you want to be active in contradicting that which you are feeling, right? Your rider needs to take control of the elephant. You need to contradict those thoughts and those cognitive distortions that always and inevitably come up. Because we often lie to ourselves in order to avoid the pain of discipline in the moment. See, I like sweets. And we just have this phrase in my family that they're sugar-coated lies. 
And I need to stay away from them because I don't have the metabolism that I used to have. But my boys, as soon as I pick up something, you know, I'm getting a little, it's late at night and I really don't need to eat, but you know, I'm feeling like I really should. I pick something up and they look at me, pops, sugar-coated lies. If you don't have someone to do that, you've got to start saying what you want to do out loud. We got to counteract our thoughts. Everything seems reasonable in our head, right? Everything seems reasonable. But say you've got something you need to get done and you want to go do something else because you don't want to go into that thing right now. You just say out loud, well, I want to eat this donut because it looks really good. And, you know, I had a full meal and I had a, you know, I had three basic full meals today, but I really need this donut. Hmm. I don't think I really need that donut. If you say it out loud, it doesn't sound nearly as reasonable, right? So one of the things is not my greatest joy to do, which is call on inactive members. I do it, but it's not my greatest joy, I will admit. And I can come up with a million good-sounding reasons not to do it. But when I say them out loud, Like, I need 15 more minutes to work on my sermon because that's going to make or break how awesome my sermon is this week. That's why I can't go call on this member. Yeah, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense. Say those fears out loud. Just say them out loud so that you can hear them. And so that your rider can take control of the elephant, of the things that you don't want to do. You want to be able to contradict it and say, that is silly. How could I think that that was reasonable? So you must contradict these things. And so that means you need to make use of the word of God. So if you find yourself looking for sweatless solutions, like what's the hack? What's the silver bullet? You say out loud to yourself, Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your brow shall you eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's just reality. That's the place we're in. There's no way to hack that. And so you contradict whatever the lie you're telling yourself or whatever lie your distractions are trying to get you to believe that somehow you can accomplish this by doing something else. No, this is by the sweat of my brow. Or when you're looking with impatience to get the fruits from work done now, like you don't want to wait. You recite Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You say it out loud. When you are hankering for the thing to just be done and over with when you think that, look, I can't wait for the return on my investment anymore. You just recite Galatians 6, 9. When you want to give up, when you're feeling the pain of your work and you're beginning to lose hope, thinking that, How could God ever work through anything that I do? The things are so bad that we're losing, losing so much. You recite Deuteronomy 28, 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. 
Or you could recite Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Make use of the richness of gifts that he has given you by means of the Spirit. They are there not only to comfort you in the forgiveness of your sins, they are there for your whole life, for every instance, every possible scenario. When you think that the pain of discipline has no meaning, that is, it just happens by happenstance. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you must endure. God is treating you as sons. You have been promoted. When you want to complain about how bad you have it and how other people get off easy, recite for 1 Corinthians 10.10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 when he lists out all of his weaknesses, sufferings, and trials. When you are tempted to avoid discipline, James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness come to, or have its full effect, that has come to maturity, that you may be perfect, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, has been given. Not just a past, still in effect. In doing this, in contradicting whatever you may be facing and contradicting, speaking back to it, talking back, to the thoughts or the doubts that you have in talking back to them and contradicting them, you're exposing the lies with the truth of the word of God. And at the same time, you are receiving comfort, help, and courage from the spirit to stay the course, to press on, to endure and persevere, to stay in your cell. When things look like they're bad, dare to believe in all the promises of God. Dare to hope. Have courage to hope. Run through the list of all the people who have, were cast down and came out. Dare to act. Love what God loves. Delight in the things that he has put in front of you. Hate what he hates. Your chief hatred of what he hates is your unwillingness to believe and hope in what he has promised or your failures. He has forgiven all of these things for you in Christ Jesus. 
He does not look upon you with shame or regret. But he is spurring you on. Not as a taskmaster in Egypt with a whip. No. He's spurring you on. Like a father. You can do this. You're mine. You lack no gift of the Spirit. So crises, while they don't build character and they reveal it, with God's work, they do build. They give you hope. They give you a reason to push on. Why do we go through all these things? Why, if we've been given the ultimate thing, should we strive in this life for seemingly lesser things? It's because he has given us the ultimate thing, because he has built us up to endure, that we seek to make our dad proud in everything that we do. So pain is the sign of growth, the sign of promotion. Delight in it because it is a gift from your Father in heaven. In the presentation that I gave to all the pastors, uh, I talked a little bit about, um, like, so, so you know, how do I do, do these things? And I'm like, well, you know, you do it the way you do anything else. Like, if you want to get up early in the morning, so say you're not an early riser, say you want to start getting up early in the morning, uh, this is what you do. You set your alarm for early. And then when it goes off, you get up, right? There is no, there's no trick. Uh, And if that's what your first battle is of the day, right? Say you're not an early riser and you want to learn, right? That is a good thing to to try to make yourself do, which is uncomfortable. Like I'm going to get up a half an hour to an hour earlier. And I'm going to use that time now for something else that, you know, reading the Bible or something like that. Um, but there's no trick. I mean, there are some things like maybe you can put your alarm on the other side of the room so you actually have to get up out of bed, but that only works so long. Uh, Don't ask me how I know. Uh, But really, it does come down to that. Like when you just have to say, I don't want my first battle of the day to be a loss. And you've got to Think about that in your mind. And, not, and, not, and then eventually, hopefully, it becomes a habit in such a way that it's not a battle. It's just part of what you do. And we want to train in that way so that some of the things, when we, when we face difficulties, that we will automatically, we've been trained in such a way to contradict it with God's word, to fall back on and dare to believe, and dare to hope, and dare to act. In the beginning, it's work. And for some things, it might always be work. I'm not saying it just goes away. Because there's always something new. There's always something to be promoted to. Well, I mean, fasting is going without. So that's a particular kind of difficult thing. So saying no to your body... uh, But these would be like, you know, acts of asceticism, I suppose you would say. The Bible has fasting all over the place, and that is a great thing, uh, to to learn to say no to your flesh, right? When the desire or the hunger pangs set in, the longer you fast, the longer you realize that it only lasts about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, And if you can hold out, you can hold out. And you learn that you don't always have to give in to every desire. And, uh, and that's what the power of the mind and what I'm trying to say, like reframing the things that we do. If we can reframe and think about them differently, we can actually see th- these, are, these are surmountable. We don't have to give in. It's not a foregone conclusion. And so fasting is one of those things uh, you could do, you know, cold showers or whatever. Part of what you're dealing with addiction is that they've been trying to escape the pain of normality for 
however long, right? And so it's a double whammy. I mean, it's extra when now you take that away and it feels extra because they've been, they've been avoiding it for so long. And, uh, you know, I, I remember um, you know, talking to a young man once, uh, just recently married, who was like, you know, look, I I'm always feel down. Uh, you know, I really think I need to go to, you know, to get some medicine. Uh, you know, to, to, and I just said, that's not what you need. You need to stop feeling sorry for yourself. I mean, I knew the situation better than I'm telling you. Uh, you need to kind of stop wallowing in how hard things are and do some extra hard things. Like you need to get active in these things. And this is just, this is life, right? There's no escaping this. This is life. And if, if, we, don't, if we don't face the things that are difficult, we will always run away from them, always. We will train ourselves to do the opposite. And so that's what I'm saying. Like, if, if we're, if we're going to run away from the small things, what makes us think that when the big things come, we're going to be faithful? And so, again, this is, this is training. This is ongoing training. But I don't want it just to be seen as the, that the goodness of that difficulty is only in the result. But that, that, mercy is shown afterward. Like in order for us to feel pleasure, we must also be able to feel pain. Kind of like a dualistic thing. I, I think it actually serves a purpose beyond just the, the ability for God then to show his mercy. Right? That, that this is how uh, there was work in the garden. Uh, what did that work consist of? Um, and now we revolt against all of the difficulties of our duties in this world. And it's not the problem with the work, it's the problem with us. And reframing that the work is good, doing that difficult thing is actually good for us. That enduring that uncomfortable situation in going through those difficult times actually makes a good impression on us and makes us stronger. Right? So not just that the benefit overflows into the possibility for God to show his mercy, he does that. And I don't want to dismiss that, but I think there's more there. I'm dealing primarily with all the things that we are trying to avoid dealing with. Uh, this does not answer every single question of pain. But I mean, I think you can build it upon that. Uh, but I'm really, really looking at the perceived pain that we think we're going to endure by doing the difficult task ahead of us and why we avoid it. And that we want to avoid it because we don't want to go through that pain. Um, we want to find a different way, right? The way that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness to find a different way. But I would add on top of this, um, like all of the people of God should know what the inside of one another's living rooms look like, right? So that everyone should have, be open to showing hospitality to those who are of the household of faith. So that when you see a brother who maybe for the 4th of July isn't getting together with his family because He's lost some of them and will need to go alone. You invite them. You open your home. Like you reach out. You be hospitable. And those kinds of relationships are formed over time so that it doesn't replace, but it does fill some of the void. Does that make sense? And, and so, so, for example, we have a, a widower in our congregation that 
uh, probably the last six years have been widowed. Um, his daughter lives in town, but we just have him over to our house periodically. Well, when my teenage boy was turning 16 and needed to get like five bajillion hours in driving for the state of Illinois, this 94-year-old man said, hey, can I help you let your oldest get some of those hours? Now, I don't know if he would have done that had we not invited him in and was very comfortable with our family. Maybe he would. He is that kind of guy. But they would not just go out for like 20 minutes and then come back. They would go out for two hours and they would just talk about anything. Now imagine a 15-year-old, 16-year-old kid talking to a 95-year-old weekly for two hours. What that does, not only for the 15-year-old kid, but what that does for the 95-year-old who's widowed. We are the people of God. We need to be open to that kind of thing. We need to be the first ones to jump at those things. It's work. It's work. But it's good work. So my other encouragement would be not to let just the person who's going through difficulty to have to be the one to always pony up, but that when you see someone, and you could see that they're going through difficulty, and that means I'm gonna to need to share in that difficulty, that you would press in to do that, like you would do for a family member who's living in your home. 